This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's show is being taped in advance. It's a new program with new information for all of you, um, but we will not be taking questions during this program since it is being taped. If you do have questions for me, you can reach out pretty easily at info at alessimd.com, and I'll get the questions directly and happy to address them either privately or on the air. Uh, with that, you can also get to Facebook and follow me on Twitter at, at DRAlessi. Now, today's show, uh, my guest is going to be Dr. Mark Bromberg, and we're going to chat with him in the second half of the program. I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Bromberg at the American Academy of Neurology meetings in Philadelphia this year. Dr. Bromberg is a colleague of mine who is a researcher in the field of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. We talked last week with Dr. Kevin Felice, and I've spent a little bit more time than usual doing two back-to-back programs with a similar topic because this is such a devastating illness. When you think of ALS, you think of Lou Gehrig. But we don't understand that motor neuron disease affects Children with spinal muscular atrophy, the infantile form, also known as Werdenig-Hoffman disease, that Dr. Felice talked about last week. So we're going to talk a little bit about these illnesses and what's being done in terms of treatment. Are we making progress? And we are, as Dr. Felice pointed out, and we're going to talk a little bit more with Dr. Bromberg about that in the second half of the program. Um, So some of the things that have come up, and one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about was heat stroke, kind of a generalized term, but there was recently an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we've talked about it on this program because there are two types of heat stroke. Now that the weather is getting warmer, um, there there is exertional heat stroke, and we spoke to my colleague, Dr. Doug Casa, on this program, and that's a, a medical emergency. Um, that's typically where someone is out there exercising in extreme heat. And as a result of being in the extreme heat, they cannot accommodate to those conditions. Their body doesn't acclimate. So there are classic symptoms. Not only is it high body temperature, but neurologic confusion becomes part of the symptoms, in which case you need to treat quickly and try to get their their temperature down. Often we do that. It's pretty basic treatment. Get them in an ice bath. So we see a lot of exertional heat stroke with people who are so happy to be out there jogging. But, you know, we've all seen these folks, right? It's 90-something degrees, and they're out there jogging in the sun. Um, you know, it's, it's just a dangerous thing to do, and you have to be very careful doing it. But the other form of heat stroke is really the classic form of heat stroke. So when we get into the dog days of summer, right, in July and August, where it's exceptionally hot, 
elderly people and children are the most vulnerable to this. So we always hear about a heat wave and elderly people dying. Why does it affect them? Because physiologically, as we get older, things wear out. And in this case, your ability to acclimate, to get rid of the heat from an endocrinologic standpoint, becomes compromised. That compromise comes not only with age, but also from being chronically ill. So these are people who typically cannot care for themselves, and we are dealing more and more with these heat-related issues. And that's why many elderly people have to be hospitalized, or they're the people who are found dead from heat stroke during these, th- these episodes. You also need to be careful with this in very young children and infants because, again, their bodies, their physiology, physiology has not fully adapted to the ability to get rid of heat. Kind of your own internal air conditioning is not fully developed. So please keep that in mind. If you're exercising or even going out and doing chores, you're going to mow the lawn in extreme heat, please be very mindful of this. Stay hydrated. Take a break. You know what? Let the lawn grow a little bit if you have to. It doesn't have to be done just at that time. Maybe wait for it to cool off a little bit in the evening uh, or even in the early morning if you don't have neighbors very close to you. This day in medicine, July 6th, and uh, this one in uh, 1885, the nine-year-old Joseph Meister, this is an interesting one, receives the first injection of the weakened microbes of Pasteur's hydrophobia vaccine. Now, hydrophobia is rabies. Now, rabies used to be a huge killer, okay, when you got bitten by an animal that was infected with rabies. Um, This virus goes right to the brain and causes severe symptoms, uh, confusion, seizures, eventually brain swelling and death. Fortunately, thanks to the work of uh, Dr. Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, and we always, you know, we always think of him with pasteurization and uh, his bacteriologic knowledge, but in this case, he really developed the first vaccine for rabies, something that we give all our animals in order to prevent widespread rabies because people were dying of this back then. And we're going to talk about that in the next thing. We're going to take a short break. And then we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about an encounter I had on the radio on another station um, with an elected official just on the topic of vaccines. And I learned a lot more about the anti-vaxxers who are out there and how they're trying to think their way through this problem. With that, We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Welcome back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. In this segment of the show, we started talking a little bit about vaccines and Louis Pasteur coming up with the first vaccine for rabies. And I had a recent encounter on another radio program Um, where we talked a little bit about some of the things we talked about on this program. I'm very disappointed in our elected officials here in Connecticut. As you know, uh, New York State got rid of the religious exemption for vaccines. Why? 
because there is no religion that actually says we don't believe you should not be vaccinated. Um, one person actually on that station called in and said, well, Russian Orthodox churches uh, prohibit vaccines. And that's not true. If you go to their website, their patriarchal commission is not against vaccines in any way, shape or form. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, many people in that church have opted not to do that. And you know what? That's their right. So one of the things this elected official came up, and, and the reason I'm disappointed in our elected official is they punted, right? They do what a lot of politicians do. They don't dig in their heels and face a problem. We have a problem here. And the problem comes down to one thing, herd immunity. Let me explain. And if you have a chance, Google herd immunity. There's a great little kind of cartoon representation of what it means. There's only one statistic you all need to know, and that is 95%. Herd immunity, okay, if you achieve immunity for a disease, a vaccination rate of 95%, you will now have herd immunity. That means not enough people are vulnerable individuals to whatever the infection is, so it does not become widespread. So like this current measles outbreak would be much more contained if 95% of the people were vaccinated. I'm proud to say that in the state of Connecticut, our vaccine rate has always been high, usually around 98%, but that number is dropping because more and more people, for some reason, are being influenced by misinformation on the Internet. So this herd immunity is dropping. So this is an impending crisis. And our elected officials are out there. They should be protecting us and protecting not not the people who get vaccinated, but the people who cannot be vaccinated, those who have an allergy, young children fighting cancer who are immunosuppressed. Who's speaking for them? They're not the squeaky wheel up in Hartford. So with that, there are several things that this elected official brought up. And first of all, he started by saying, I'm not saying vaccines are good or bad. That's an anti-vaxxer politician statement. What do you mean? Then What do you mean they're not good? Just ask somebody who had polio. OK, or someone who has lived through these outbreaks. So we know that vaccines are good. The question then, the other question he raised was, if vaccines are so good, why don't they always work? Well, that's kind of a goofy statement because nothing ever always works. But the reason they sometimes are ineffective is because they started kind of diluting the vaccines in the 90s because people were so nervous there was too many vaccines. So you had to get a booster after that. People didn't go get the booster, so they were not fully immunized. The other thing that he brought up was something called, and I, this is a term I never heard, where he's against vaccines of convenience. Now, that's a new term for me. And he specifically noted the human papillomavirus vaccine. The HPV vaccine is something, again, elective. It's given to teenagers to avoid the human papillomavirus and as a result, since we started vaccinating in 2011, the statistics have shown that we have a 29% drop 
in cancer of the cervix in women. So people always say, when are you going to find a cure for cancer? We did. At least for one type of cancer, we're able to effectively avoid this cancer through a vaccine. And that's what we're seeing more and more of. We've talked about on this show, potentially a vaccine against Alzheimer's disease. So this is the future, is harnessing the power of our immune system to fight cancer and other diseases. And it's important that we recognize this. I think a lot of this misinformation that's out there uh, on the Internet uh, really um, is, is through foreign influences. I think that um, people have really started a lot of misinformation campaigns. Uh, but I think the most important thing you're going to do is, and we talk about it on this pro, I advise our listeners, ask your doctor, would you do this? So, for example, doctor recommends a drug to you. Doctor, if you had my condition, would you take this medication? Or you're sending me to another doctor. Is this someone you would go to if you had this condition? That's a good question. And your doctor's not going to be put, if your doctor's put off by that question, find a new doctor. Because I'm not put off by that. So, interestingly, you need to ask people, well, did you immunize your children? And that's a very interesting question for these elected officials who are out there kind of playing both sides of the aisle. With that, I think we need to keep that in mind. And we remember that today because Louis Pasteur had us vaccinate against rabies. So, again, people are against big government telling people what to do. Uh, I'm not saying you, you can't be vaccinated. You know, if you have a right to not vaccinate your child, isn't government coming in and holding you down and injecting you with something. But if you're not vaccinated, your child should not attend public school. What's interesting about it is nobody's complaining about big government telling us that our dogs need to be vaccinated. Isn't that interesting? Nobody even questions vaccinating their dogs against rabies. But we're all questioning vaccinating our children. Have we come to the point where we treat our, our pets better than our own children? Something to think about. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back and chat with my colleague, Dr. Mark Bromberg, about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm at the American Academy of Neurology annual meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I have uh, the honor of being with Dr. Mark Bromberg. Dr. Bromberg is a professor of neurology at the University of Utah. He is a specialist in neuromuscular diseases, um, particularly ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and I wanted to chat with him a little bit about uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and everything going on at the University of Utah in their MDA clinic and ALS Association clinic. Uh, Mark, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Tony. I'm very pleased to be here. We go back a long time, and it's always good to see you, and I'm impressed with your uh, podcast and radio program. I'm happy to participate. Uh, this is great. Uh, Mark, for our listeners, let's kind of recap. What is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? 
Well, it's a neurodegenerative disorder, and the name ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, very accurately describes the two sets of nerve cells that are involved. And so amyotrophy would be atrophy or shrinkage of muscles, and that indicates that the nerves going to muscles degenerate and die. So there are fewer nerves that reach the muscle, muscle doesn't get the message, and so it's weak and it becomes smaller or uh, atrophies. The lateral sclerosis indicates a second set of nerves that are involved, and these are nerves that start off in the brain, in the motor cortex, and they send their fibers down. And basically, these are called upper motor neurons because they're highest up in a, in a hierarchy, and they connect to the nerves I just talked about, which are called lower motor neurons. So if you want to move in a simplified uh, fashion, the upper motor neurons talk to the lower motor neurons, which talk to the muscles, and it executes what you want to do. So the upper motor neurons, to get down to the spinal cord, where the lower motor neurons reside, they travel down on the lateral sides of the spinal cord. So that's the lateral. And sclerosis is just a pathologic term for scar tissue, though so it's not specific. Um, and so when these upper motor neurons degenerate in the spinal cord, you get some scar tissue in the lateral portion, so lateral sclerosis. Let's start with, I mean, historically, we always think of Lou Gehrig, who contracted the disease, I believe, at age 38. Um, why does it affect primarily young people? Well, Or is uh, that a misnomer? I would say that um, that's not accurate statistically statistically or epidemiologically. So if you look at a large number of patients and uh, ask them when their symptoms first started, it turns out that the uh, most common age of symptom onset is in the late 50s of age. So it's also a disease of adults, which means that it's very rare to occur in anybody uh, age 20 or less. It does occur occasionally in people who are in their second decade, a little more commonly in the third and fourth decade. As I said, most commonly in the fifth decade. But it also can occur with onset in people who are in their 70s and their 80s. Do you think that's a factor of the fact that we're living longer? Well, that's a good point because it is a, a disorder of, of adults. And most neurodegenerative disorders, such as uh, dementias, Alzheimer-type disease, and Parkinson disease are also have an age factor in there. But as far as whether we are living longer uh, and the incidence is going up, I would say that as far as we know with epidemiologic studies, the incidence of ALS is not increasing over time. Have things changed in terms of making the diagnosis? I mean, we've always relied on our clinical examination and electrophysiologic testing. Is that changing? It really hasn't, so you're absolutely correct. It's a clinical diagnosis, which means you listen to the patient's complaint, which is not in a negative way, but what symptoms they're, they're having, where they started in their body, how they have progressed over time, and then you examine them. And what you're looking for is clinical evidence of atrophy and weakness of uh, muscles for the lower motor neuron loss, and then you're looking for pathologic reflexes and stiffness of limbs for upper motor neuron loss. And the one diagnostic test which is most helpful is the EMG study, 
because ALS, for some reason, for lower motor neuron involvement, starts focally. And it starts in one limb, and it tends to progress in that limb. And it does progress to other limbs. Before the limb or the muscle is clinically weak, you have to lose about half of these lower motor neurons going to the muscle. So what the EMG study allows you to do is to look for evidence of subclinical loss of nerves going to muscle. So if you find this in a very diffuse distribution within the body and you have no other explanation for this loss of lower motor neurons, that's very helpful diagnostically. Imaging studies like MRI scans really don't help at all. Once you've made the diagnosis, I mean, traditionally, we've always felt that there is no treatment. It's essentially a death sentence. Um, but we're hearing more and more about research and uh, medications to possibly be used to extend someone's life. Um, what's the latest on that? Well, first, it is a very challenging disorder. Uh, we'll probably talk in, in a couple of minutes about what we think may be causative factors, but simply stated, we do not know what causes ALS. There are a few genetic um, uh, examples, but it's a disorder that starts on its own and it progresses on its own. Some people have a fast rate of progression, some people have an intermediate rate, <clears throat> and some people have a slow rate for unclear reasons. But it does eventually involve the nerves that go to the diaphragm, which is the breathing muscle. So you are correct. People uniformly pass away from the disorder. There's a tremendous amount of research and there are a large number of clinical trials looking for medications or interventions that will prolong survival. At this point, we have two, two medications that the Food and Drug Administration has approved <clears throat> for uh, treatment with ALS. One was approved about uh, 20 years ago, and one was approved about two years ago. They both have very modest effects, which means that within the drug trials that the FDA reviewed and felt showed uh, statistical efficacy, the efficacy, the effectiveness, the rate it slows down the course of the disease is probably too slow for the individual patient to appreciate that it's working. Okay. There are other interventions that we can uh, give. One is if people have weakness of their muscles involved in chewing and swallowing, they may lose weight. And so in general, loss of weight becoming cachectic isn't good. And so we can supplement nutrition if people can't swallow adequately by placing a, a feeding tube, a tube directly into the stomach. So it doesn't prevent them from eating, but they can supplement their nutrition directly into the stomach without having to chew and swallow. So we have a feeling that, number one, that helps people feel better, so it helps maintain quality of life. And we think that there's an element of prolonging survival. As I mentioned, uh, people pass away from respiratory failure. Nothing happens suddenly in ALS, but the respiratory failure builds up. And there are some assisted breathing devices, similar to what people use when they have obstructive sleep apnea. Most people have heard of CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. But there are other modalities. One of them is bi-level positive airway pressure or BiPAP that patients with ALS frequently use at night and it kind of assists their breathing. 
Again, it improves quality of life, we feel, but it also may prolong survival. So we've got some modest effects from uh, medications people can take, and we have some modest effects from these interventions. And another tier of treatment, which we do think is effective, is patients coming to multidisciplinary ALS clinics. And so there are two organizations in the country that have a, a, an interest in ALS. One is obviously the ALS Association, but the Muscular Dystrophy Association, in addition to being interested in primary muscle diseases, also has a very strong interest in ALS. So in these multidisciplinary clinics, when a patient comes into the clinic, it's a long clinic visit, but they have the ability to benefit from providers such as speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, the neurologist, um, social worker. Um, when people become weak in the legs, do we have um, people who can help them get wheelchairs and so on. So this multidisciplinary clinical approach, um, we think, has an impact prolonging survival. Well, locally um, in Connecticut, it's Dr. Kevin Felice who runs uh, the uh, ALS clinic uh, at the hospital for special care. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Mark Bromberg, and we're talking about ALS and potential treatments. We have some questions because there have been things um, in the press about activity. Are we seeing this more in football players, soccer players, and other athletes? We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm at the American Academy of Neurology chatting with my colleague and friend, Dr. Mark Bromberg. And we're talking about ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mark, there's been a lot in the press about is there a correlation with ALS and people who are active, particularly in high-velocity collision sports. There have been several football players who have developed ALS and played particularly aggressive forms of football. There is a study that's been cited at this meeting of Italian soccer players. So is there a correlation between repetitive trauma and ALS? Well, this is a controversial area. It's controversial in the sense that there are many comments, many um, associations, but very little um, hard data to give distinct or specific answers. So you focused on the Italian soccer players. And so a number of years ago, um, there was a, a, a report that maybe there were a higher percentage of Italian soccer players who developed ALS. And there was a lawsuit involved, but the point is the press picked it up and it's unclear exactly how many soccer players developed ALS and over what time period and what was the number of players that they were uh, reporting from. However you look at the data, it does appear that at least amongst Italian soccer players, there are more people developing ALS than you'd expect for the age group of the uh, players. Interestingly, when you look at the various positions the soccer players play, so-called midfielders uh, were the ones that had more incidence of ALS than other positions. Now, I used to play soccer in high school, so I know a little bit, and I watch a little bit of it on TV, and it seems to me that um, 
midfielders may not run as 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 uh, much as the other players and when you compare at least in Italy the incidence of ALS amongst professional cyclists who are working hard for many hours and professional basketball players who are running up and down the court for many hours it seems to be focal to the soccer players and focal to the midfielders so it's not clear what possible mechanism could there could be then you turn to what soccer players do besides running they do head the ball I don't think that there's a high incidence of concussions in soccer players and when there is it's usually because the head meets some other body part of another player and that's fairly rare so heading the ball per se I don't think causes con concussions I don't know that the same uh, intensity of looking at soccer players in other countries has been performed so much as it has been in Italy. Then you look at um, American football and then there's uh, rugby. Uh, all of those have uh, more incidence of actual concussions. When you look at the data for American football, it seems to be an encephalopathy, meaning a dementia, and maybe some psychiatric components. The literature does not support as high an incidence of ALS amongst American football players as it does encephalopathy. Now the two could go together, but, but there does seem to be a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of American football players um, with ALS. Then you can ask, well, what are they playing on? In other words, is there anything on the uh, turf, the grass uh, medium. Obviously, to keep the grass growing, people apply fertilizers and, fertilizers and pesticides, and that also expands it to uh, agricultural workers, as there are higher incidence uh, amongst uh, farmers or people who are dealing directly with uh, pesticides. So the answer for that kind of environmental exposure isn't clear either. So, um, then you can stand back and say, well, these are athletes. And if you look at people who are athletically inclined, there are some data that suggests that people who have ALS compared to people who don't tend to have had a more athletic um, upbringing. In other words, they were more athletic in high school, more athletic in um, college. So there is this association with athleticism. And then you can add in, um, what about body mass index? In other words, athletes tend to be lean and other people tend to be less lean. And so when you look at body mass index, which is a measure of how stout you are and factors in uh, height and weight, it turns out that people who have low body mass index tend to be more likely of those who have ALS than people who have a more generous uh, body mass index. So it may be nutrition, but we have not identified anything in particular, although people who have elevated lipids in their bloodstream may be less likely to have ALS than people who, who do not. So you can see that we don't have answers, and when we begin to expand and explore associations with athleticism, uh, where you play your uh, sport, whether it's on the basketball court, wood, or on the field, um, American or uh, 
uh, not, uh, other forms of football, it really isn't clear. Mark, it, it just really opens up the whole door to a lot more research. I mean, especially when you start looking at turf, uh, you know, there's always been this debate ongoing, does artificial turf cause cancer? And could that play a role in it? So I think um, there are so many factors here. I think what you're highlighting is that we don't have enough information to really direct the public in terms of are you more likely to get this or should you avoid doing this? Correct. But I, I, I want to stress that this should not stop you from <clears throat> going out and um, participating in sporting activities that you enjoy and keeping yourself in general good health because being somewhat on the lean side can certainly protect you from other diseases such as uh, diabetes and diabetes itself has a host of well-known medical issues. Uh, absolutely. Mark, I want to thank you. Thanks for spending time today. Uh, it's been great to be able to sit here and chat with a friend about such a relevant topic. Well, it's my, my pleasure, Tony. I want to thank uh, all my guests today, especially Dr. Mark Bromberg, um, for spending time with me to talk about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I'll be back next week with a live program. But please remember to download our podcast, the Healthy Rounds podcast. You get this at iTunes. And you can go back and listen to a lot of our old programs um, that we have referred to in future shows as we move along. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.